This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another great episode of Material is Your Business on Mouth Media Network. And today I have a simple question for you. It's, do you want to create better products? And if the answer is yes, then this is the conversation for you. We're going to talk about how to leverage new material and manufacturing innovations with Dr. Andrew Dent, Executive Vice President Research of Material Connection. And the show starts right now. My name is Andrew Dent. I'm Executive Vice President in charge of materials research at a company called Material Connection. And what I love about materials is that they continually surround us. No matter where you are on the planet, everywhere you look, you will find materials. And so therefore, there's a chance for them to constantly evolve and improve. From New York City, this is Material Is Your Business, a podcast covering the science, technology, and business of materials and manufacturing. Your hosts for this episode are... Stephanie Benedetto, CEO and co-founder of Queen of Raw. Samantha Cortez, international consultant and founder of Samantha's Platform. And Rob Sanchez, business strategist and COO of Open Source Business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome, everyone. I'm Stephanie Benedetto, and I'm joined by my co-host, Samantha Cortez. Hola. And Rob Sanchez. Hey, y'all. And our guest today is Dr. Andrew Dent, the Executive Vice President of Research at Material Connection. Hi, Andrew. Hi there. Great to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So in the first segment, we typically want to just get a little bit of an understanding of who you are and what you do sure. on a high level. Okay. Um, I work for a company called Material Connection. Uh, we've been around for about 20 years, and my role there is to help our clients produce better products. Uh, we have a resource, which is a large li library in Rockefeller Plaza, which houses around uh, seven or 8,000 uh, samples of materials. We use that resource as a way to show our clients who range from, well, basically everybody who makes anything. If you think about, um, if, if you think about your, your average day, when you wake up in the morning, we help the people who make your pajamas, who make the bed that you're sleeping in, who make uh, the sheets. When you, when you check your phone, we help those companies as well. You walk into the kitchen, the flooring that you walk on, the, uh, the coffee maker that you actually use to make your coffee. Basically, when you get into your car or into the subway, we help those clients too. When you get into the office, everything around you, the chair, the desk, all of the products that you're using, we're helping those companies produce better products by helping them find new and, and interesting materials. So that library does that. We show them different ways in which they can manufacture things, different ways in which they can uh, rebrand their products, uh, create new functionalities, all through just the access to those materials. I think one of the things I find so fascinating, and I've been to Material Connection Space, is the way you blend kind of the physical and the digital space. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit. I know you have a, a wonderful resource and library, both online and offline, and both the physical and the digital, and a mm -hmm. little bit about how that came about and why it's important to your clients. Well, yes. Um, the digital is essential uh, because many of our clients don't live in New York, so therefore uh, we can't always guarantee they can make it over uh, to come see the space. So we have an online archive. It mimics and, and mirrors the, the uh, physical space. So every sample that we source and put into our library is also accessible through uh, images, through contact information, through uh, explanations about what it is online. 
So a lot of our clients will do simple uh, digital searches for the materials rather than physically come in. But of course, as um, anyone who loves materials knows, that there's, there's no real uh, substitution for uh, the physical samples themselves. So although we do a lot of our work digitally, we do a lot of our presentations that way, uh, we always do recommend our clients do come to see the space because you can see um, two or three materials online and think they're great, but, but within our library, you can see those two or three materials and then thousands of others. So it sparks innovation and inspiration for them that's beyond just the specific needs they have. And I know when you walk into your library, you, you just encourage people to touch, to feel, to take things down off the wall, to interact with it. And it brings such a, a different level of kind of understanding and appreciation. For some of the bigger clients that you work with, uh, you know, BMW and in all the different areas, mm -hmm. can you walk through what the process is when they want to come to you with a problem that they want solved or a solution they're looking for that they can't find? Sure. Um, yes, uh, the it depends very much on the client and also which uh, group within the client's company. We have worked with the engineers, and for them it's very much based upon a set of uh, technical parameters. They need material that has this sort of water resistance, this sort of um, abrasion resistance. It, it withstands tearing in this way. So a, a whole set of functional parameters that we then need to find materials as an alternative to. Then you've got the designers, and they want to create something new, which is beautiful and awe-inspiring and, and is innovative in some way. So talk in terms of uh, emotional responses. Uh, you know, how do I feel when I experience this material? Uh, what sort of uh, new thing did, d d does it get me to experience? Then, of course, then there's the marketers. And the marketers need to have the right words, terminology, ways in which they can sell the material. So things like sustainability, uh, buzzwords um, within the industry are important to them. So they come to us with a set of needs, and they can be marketing, design, or engineering. And then we will find materials and recommend manufacturing methods which work well for their specific needs. I see one of the things that you do a lot is um, cross markets. Yes. I find that extremely interesting. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? When somebody comes to you in the fashion world and you present them something out of automobile? Sure. Yes, so that's one of our main values. Um, if you think about it, um, when Nike comes to us, um, I'm not really going to show Nike um, sports fabrics because they have a whole library of those. They have a whole team of researchers over in Portland who are doing that sort of work already. What we can show them though are architectural materials, automotive materials, materials that are used for military or, or pharmaceutical or medical. We can broaden them their um, understanding of what they could potentially use because ultimately a fabric is a fabric and as long as it works in terms of performance and aesthetics and overall use, then I don't care whether where it came from, as long as it works in their, uh, their application, then it's good for them. And it's better to show them stuff that perhaps is outside of their current uh, resources and also manufacturing because it allows them to think differently about the way they make their products. As an example of what you did with the embroidery, where the, where the sneaker, the embroidery of the, of the sailboats, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, we've helped Nike think about different ways to, to manufacture products. Um, the, the Nike Flyknit is a good example. Um, we'd worked with some of the, the, their team to think about how do you uh, create a shoe differently? How do you think differently beyond the existing manufacturing, which was probably three, four, five, perhaps even eight different materials stuck, uh, you know, glued together or stitched or heat welded in some way? How do we think differently about that? How do we reduce the complexity, therefore reduce the manufacturing needs and also improve the overall sustainability and then also reduce the cost? So the manufacturing method in which to create 
the entire section of a shoe rather than putting it together in individual pieces changes the way they think about how they can um, make their products. As you're looking at materials, are, are you looking at um, also how they're stuck together, how they, like what adhesives, what bonding is used and so on? And are you able to walk somebody all the way through all of that side as well? Sure. Um, you know, the, the fashion industry is, is hampered by the fact that the clothes are all wearing, I've been cut and sewn, a process that probably has been going on for a thousand years. Um, so trying to help um, those companies think differently about how they could put materials together. We have an awful lot of digital tools now. How do we use those as a way to perhaps more effectively bond two materials? Because we know now exactly um, the way in which two separate pieces of fabric need to hold together. You know, typically it's stitched. How do we then use digital tools in order to perhaps glue them together that has the same way of drape that uh, a stitching does? So we're always thinking of different ways to do that because we want to move away from that cut and sew to think about manufacturing methods which can be more automated, more creative, uh, and allow us to create different silhouettes, different shapes, without necessarily all of the intensive handwork that's needed right now. Just to take a step back, uh, one thing that we haven't talked about that I think is worth mentioning is the process of becoming a material in your library. Because you don't just take anything and everything. The goal is not to be a, a warehouse of what's out Correct, there, right? Yes. There's specific criteria, one of which I know you mentioned, sustainability. I wonder if you can walk us through the criteria and what's important and how you get into your library. Sure. Yes, we, if we included all materials, we would have hundreds of thousands rather than just um, thousands. It's all about innovation. Um, as I mentioned, you know, I don't want to cover all of the SKUs that Nike or Prada needs. Um, they have their own resources for those. We are always looking for ways in which materials are game-changing. Um, are there new um, technologies that haven't been seen before? So we have four major tenets for innovation. The first one um, is, is it a brand new uh, method or material itself? Is it something we, that the world has never seen before? That will be a great way of, of getting into our library. The second is, has it significantly improved on existing materials? So I've got material A, if I've managed to make it 50% lighter, 200% stronger, or transparent in some way it wasn't before, that to me is an innovation. The third is technology transfer. It's coming from, from different industries. How do we uh, source materials that are outside of our current client's industry and show them something that maybe was not new in aerospace, but is new to their industry? So that to us is innovation as well. And the fourth, as you mentioned, sustainability. How do we reduce the overall environmental impact? So I may have a material that exists in our library already, but if a new version uses 50% less water, is able to die without any uh, toxic chemicals, is able to come from recycled resources, we like that as well. So those are the four main areas. And also, you know, we also allow a certain level of um, creativity as well. Often we are source, trying to source materials perhaps that come from designers as well, rather than just manufacturing resources. When designers come up with a completely new way to solve a problem, we're always interested in that too. Maybe it's not through a regular manufacturing method, um, but we're always open to sort of left field innovations that don't necessarily come from our existing suppliers or ones that traditionally make materials. Sometimes it comes from a design problem that had a very innovative solution. And as I understand it, there's a whole jury process involved, which I found very interesting and exciting. How does that work? Yes. Um, we like to have our material vetted. Uh, we like to have it reviewed because ultimately the people who are going to know whether this is important to them or not are our clients. So we're always using our clients to vet materials and vote and assess so that we know that we're still steering the right sort of course when it comes to what's interesting to them. 
Have there been any particular innovations recently or new items juried in that you bear, want to mention that were exciting? Um, actually, there's, a, there's one area that I've been interested in recently. Uh, as part of what we do as a business, we also uh, let our clients know what's new, and what's trending, what's, what's important that, that they need to know about. One of them was artificial spider silk. Okay, so I've been tracking this material for a number of years, uh, and it's fascinating to me on many, uh, many levels. The idea is that uh, we have researchers who are trying to find a, a replication, an alternative to existing spider silk. You can use spider silk to manufacture uh, a fabric, but unfortunately, because unlike silkworms, spiders tend to eat each other and don't like giving away their, their own silk, it's very hard to produce, and it takes many, many years of very intensive work in order to get even the smallest amount of fabric from real spiders. So what do you do as an alternative? You, you take the DNA of spiders and you put it into something else. So currently, the, the research out there, you can put it into bacteria, E. coli bacteria. You can put it into yeast. You can put it into goats and milk the goats. Alternatively, you can put That's it into. That's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, that one was, was very promising until the company that did it went bankrupt. Oh, no. Uh, yes, it was a very successful process uh, because you, you can make fabrics out of milk. You, you know this, so care, care yes. and fabrics. So they, they basically put DNA into, of the spiders into the, to the goats, they milk the goats, and they made fabric. But unfortunately, the, the challenge was just getting the large enough volumes. Because that's one of the biggest problems is making enough material to make it um, cost effective. That one didn't work, uh, but the bacteria is currently working, the yeast is working, and also there's a company who's recently been um, uh, um, been working with the Department of Defense in the U.S. to manufacture fabrics from actual silkworms. So they put the spider DNA into the silkworm and have the silkworm produce the silk in the standard way, which we know that they're not competitive in the same way spiders are, so they can produce significant amounts. No. Um one of the differences is that the silkworm has to die right in that process versus like a, a spider or so on. It, the process is living, like the harvesting is yes. different, right? Yes, there, there, there is the death of a large amount of, of silkworms in, in any silk production process, yes. There are a couple of existing processes where they don't. They manage to actually take the cocoons um, out before or um, without the, the silkworms dying, but the majority, yes, there is a, yeah, they have to die for it to work. So there have been some high-profile products. Um, Adidas came out with a product, a, a running sneaker, uh, teamed with a company called AM Silk, where the entire top section of the shoe was actually made from synthetic spider silk. It's supposed to be ultra-lightweight. It has good performance. And at the end of its life, there's a, they send it with a little enzyme packet. You put it into, a, into your sink with the enzyme packet, and the enzymes basically just eat away the, the, the fabric itself, and it dissolves, and you can put it down the sink. So yeah. functional, high-performance, and then ultimately biodegradable. That's a great solution. Like before your eyes biodegradable? Yeah. yeah they, they say wow. within, within a few hours, warm water and this enzyme, it will all break down. Wow. Fascinating. It completely changes your concept of what a material is and what its life is like. And you mm -hmm. avoid that whole recycle and end of life component. That, that's awesome. Yeah. So that, it, that, not all of the artificial spider silks are, are biodegradable. This one they decided to make. Other ones they want for, um, for durable products. Uh, North Face has a a parker called the Moon Parker, where they've spun it entirely out of artificial spider silk by a company called Spiber, which is a Japanese company. And uh, Bolt Threads here in the US uh, recently came out with a tie, which is an odd application for synthetic spider silk, but at least it shows that the material can have luster, it can have wearability. It's not just high performance, it actually also go for fashion items as well. 
And it's great That's for great. zip lining, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that kind of brings me to a, a question about the fourth dimension, the, the time that you look at inside of materials. And we're mm-hmm. starting to learn more about the use of bacteria, the use of enzymes and so on mm-hmm. inside of materials. I'm thinking about like concrete where the bacteria inside of the concrete um, is the reason why Greeks have concrete that's ultra long lasting and mm-hmm. so on. How are you looking at that, um, the change of materials over time as you're making your decisions? In answer to that, for me, the ideal material is something that is low energy to produce, potentially come from a renewable resource, so it can be grown. It's performing exactly how it's supposed to perform throughout its life. At the end of its life, very much like the sneaker, disappears. So we're always thinking about ways in which materials can perform that ideal function. You know, work when they need to work, disappear when they don't. And bacteria often is a great uh, resource in order to do that. The challenge has always been... How do you get the bi- that bacteria or the natural resources to produce in the same way every time? You know, harvesting is a is a not exactly perfect science. It doesn't manufacture materials. You can have a, a bad harvest and therefore materials that have different functionality than you would if you're producing something synthetic that comes out of a lab that is produced using uh, basic methods. So, you know, nature does tend to be a little bit more varied in its production. Um, and then it's also with the life, lifetimes as well. So a lot of the challenges with using these, you know, fungi, um, the bacteria, these natural processes is trying to standardize them and trying to make sure that the length of time that they work over is enough for you to have, you know, um, a, a useful life. The, the challenge with that, of course, is that a lot of the products that we do see that do come from these natural resources can start breaking down as you're using it. Maybe that, that, maybe that is a, an advantage, a benefit. Maybe that's part of what you're trying to do. But the challenge is how do you make sure that the end of its life is only at the end of your useful um, application of it? That's a good place for a quick commercial break. Back soon on Material Is Your Business. Hi, I'm Charles Beckwith. We appreciate you downloading this program every week, and I want to invite you to also listen to our other show, which I host, American Fashion Podcast, the number one fashion industry podcast. If you want to deep dive into what really makes the fashion industry work behind the scenes, listen to the show that Harper's Bazaar called for the true fashion nerd, American Fashion Podcast, every week on iTunes, Stitcher, and at AmericanFashionPodcast.com. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Material Biz Show. That's Material B-I-Z Show. And hear all of our episodes on MaterialIsYourBusiness.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. We're back on Material Is Your Business here with Dr. Andrew Dent of Material Connection. And on break, we were talking a little bit about the exciting innovations and new developments going on with Material Connection itself and the 2.0 version that's going to be coming out on their 20th anniversary. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where Material Connection is going and some of the changes taking place. Yes, of course. So, yes, with our uh, 20-year anniversary, we wanted to sort of change it a little bit and, and adapt to the market and our clients' needs. One place that our clients find challenging is trying to understand the new information that's out there. If I'm interested in going into a new uh, manufacturing process, there's plenty of marketing speak out there. 
Um, but then who do I trust? The, the information that I get on the internet and I, when I talk to manufacturers, how do I understand whether that is something that's good for, for my business or not? So because of that 20 years of experience working with manufacturing partners, partners with brands, with materials companies, we have excellent insight into any new technology and whether it really is going to be the next big thing or just a flash in the pan. You know, I mentioned about, about spider silk, uh, that was one example. So we're coming out with um, a whole host of reports, uh, probably between 60 and 100, um, that cover the whole materials world. And those can include new manufacturing processes, composites, um, what's happening with new regulations with toxic materials, um, what are some of the new types of bio-based sources that we can use. It takes those topics and helps the reader understand what, what the new market is, is there a great potential for them? Um, you know, how, how does it work with their business? And also, what are some of the buzzwords and terms and are these really um, you know, game changes in terms of material innovation? We try to make it understandable to everybody because we're not just talking to engineers. These are CEOs, these are designers, these are marketing people. Anybody who, who is in the materials business but doesn't necessarily have a strictly materials background. So how involved do you get with the uh, manufacturing processes? Well, for us, that's as integral as, it, as the materials themselves. You know, any solution that we provide to a client is going to be 50% material and then 50% manufacturing. So for us, the manufacturing innovations can often revolutionize a basic material. You can take something as simple as polypropylene, a very commodity plastic, one of the most high-selling plastics in the world, but through manufacturing changes has become a lot more versatile and, and a whole range of different applications. When it comes to technology, it's always been an eye-opening for me. Mm -hmm. um, when I went to one of the composite shows, I saw one of the equipments laying down carbon fiber and then converting it to an auto part. Mm -hmm. Like those, those new type of manufacturing processes that, that weren't existent. Is there anything that's really caught your eye or that you're very inclined to or interested in? Okay. Well, composites, yes. A material, the composites world has been changing kind of quietly. Um, you know, to, to most of us who work in the materials business, composites is Definitely the, the purview of aerospace, um, automotive, you know, high-end uh, bicycles. Um, but we're starting to see more automation that allows us to use it in more applications now. If you think about composites perhaps 10, 15 years ago, a lot of it was a very intensive process. A lot of what they, what they call hand layup. Physically going in there and putting it in by hand, which of course is, is problematic when you're trying to produce a high-performance part. So a lot of it relied upon very technical-minded uh, companies, small companies who were very good at what they did and you had experienced users. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that you rely upon individuals and that doesn't allow for expansion in the way that we need. Over the last 10 years, though, we've seen automation, uh, ways in which robots um, and, and digital processes can lay down these materials much more quickly. You, know, you mentioned about the composite show. Yes, that, that lay down um, by a machine makes things a lot more accurate and also removes the need for potential for human error. And that for composites is important because the applications they're going into, an airplane, a car, you want them to be perfect. It's very important for that sort of thing. So we've started to see composites being used now um, in a lot, lot more areas in automotive, but also in home appliances in, in consumer products. You know, we've seen uh, casings for, for laptops and that sort of thing where they're using composites. And we're also using um, things other than carbon fiber. Carbon fiber is still the ultimate. Everyone still wants to use that. But we started to see natural fibers as well. So things such as hemp and, and jute, uh, those sorts of things, where you're getting a lot of the performance, but with a very different aesthetic and very, very different feel. Yeah, I saw the same type of machine laying down to do a skateboard with, <laughs> with the... Um 
I think it was the the jute. Yeah, jute yes. fiber. Yes. yes. The, the challenge with natural fibers, as we mentioned before, is they are imperfect. So you have to be a little bit more careful than you are with carbon fiber. But certainly, you can get some high performance um, uh, products. And also, there are directives by things like the automotive companies where they have to use a certain amount of natural materials. So if I can put it in using jute in a composite part for the door of my car, that's a great way to do it. Was Henry Ford had built a car entirely out of hemp at one point, like using a plastic process. Um, I believe the plastics were manufactured from the oil of the hemp and so on. So there's interesting things that you used to be able to do that kind of never made it mainstream. And it's interesting now to see that shift back to some of the same fibers. And um, Do you see cycles inside of what you're doing? Like mm-hmm. how, where, um, where do you see those shifts coming okay. in? You know, you, you, you bring up a very, very good point. Um, yes, the first plastics were, were organic, were, were, were renewable-based. Um, the thing was in the 40s and 50s, when we got all of our intelligent scientists to start developing chemistries, it was all in synthetic materials. So in a way, the natural materials got put, put on, on the back burner. But now as we understand there is potential to reduce our environmental impact by using these natural materials, they're coming back into, into um, to the fore. So these scientists who were originally just working on synthetic materials and helping develop them, we think about polyesters and nylons and those sorts of epoxies which are used in these, uh, in these products. Now their brains are being turned to uh, using natural materials and they're realizing that the natural world has a whole host of sources that we can use. Henry Ford was an early adopter. We're now realizing that there are things such as soy, such as castor, such as um, we have plenty of, of wheat and, and corn at the moment. Um, we can use those to produce products which have the same if not better um, uh, performance than our existing synthetic materials. So it's interesting to see how that cycle has come, come full circle. The challenge again is always oil at the moment is cheap. Uh, it's easy to get out of the ground. Um, so it's hard to compete in terms of cost. But there are performance properties through some of these natural materials. I've got one example. Um, company out of France is producing a corn-based plastic uh, called PLA. It has a different uh, version, which is, has incredibly high heat resistance, such that it can now be used as an alternative to the aluminum in Nespresso coffee makers, but now used out of a bioplastic. Very high heat resistance just because of its, its properties as a natural uh, plastic. That's an application that current synthetic, synthetic plastics can't meet. So we're continually, as we spend more time on these natural materials, we start to discover more. We're starting to realize that nature has an awful lot more still to offer. I had a friend that created one in potato. Uh-huh. Yes, a fiber from potato. And it would, it's biodegradable. Mm-hmm. You just bury it in the ground and then it dissolves. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's from Spain. Um, <laughs> anything that you can make a food out of, chances are you might be able to make a plastic out of it. Because, you know, um, you know corn, potatoes, castor oil, um, anything that makes an oil, a sugar cane, all of these things make great plastics. The interesting thing is that as our diet has shifted, uh, so corn and wheat, you were mentioning, a lot of that is because of subsidies from the U.S. government during wartime. Um, and those have kind of persisted since. So now we have a glut of corn and wheat in the market. Mm. So what do you do with it? Mm-hmm. Um, same with sugarcane. As people drink less sugar, you have an overabundance of sugarcane and the uh, manufacturing of it is no longer as profitable. So what do you do with it? And so a lot of the questions that are starting to be asked are basically like economic questions about oversupply. Mm-hmm. And um, it's also interesting to see that drive back into the same sustainability arguments. 
And how much would material connection or do you currently get involved in that kind of both the educational side as well as some of the research and development to further a curtain material that's out there but needs another push or another level? Is that part of the process that, of working with you? Is that something you're looking at? Yes, very much so. Um, often when it comes to those sorts of things, those geopolitical questions, um, our clients don't want to put a, put a foot wrong. You know, we've been asked by car companies. They say, okay, we're thinking of making a large move into a certain type of plastic, whether it's synthetic or, or renewable. And they said, well, if we do this, what are the potential red flags that might happen? So in five years, 10 years down the line, um, suddenly is someone going to say, yeah, this is a bad plastic, we shouldn't be using it? You know, a great example, Lego. Lego is spending millions and millions of dollars right now trying to move itself away from ABS. You know, it mm. couldn't know at the time that, that ABS was going to be a problematic material. But now we're concerned about some of the chemistries associated with that simple piece, piece of plastic. So they're trying to find alternatives. What is the next plastic that people might have problems with? So we do a lot of that. We do a lot of sort of looking through the literature and not just the, the basic literature um, of science, but also some of the blogs as well. If you think about the way in which the bottom fell out of the polycarbonate market, when a few mommy bloggers basically said, I've seen some research that says the polycarbonate baby bottle I'm currently using does contain some, some chemicals which are, you know, don't seem to be that good for my child. Suddenly, that thing spread like wildfire, and there was nothing that science could do to stop it. It was simply like, you know, as soon as you hear about it, the last thing you want to do is to, is to cause any potential problems for your baby. So if there's any concern, I'm not using it anymore. So suddenly glass came back. Polypropylene is now the standard material for baby bottles, whereas polycarbonate, I, I was um, weaned on, on polycarbonate bottles. I'm sure all of you were as well. So, we were drinking water out of a hose. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's, you know, it's, it's checking out those sorts of challenges. And, and again, the problem with, or one of the challenges with using natural resources is, you know, um, IKEA is a great example. They don't want to use bioplastics that potentially could be used for food. Because IKEA is such a large user of materials, if they are taking food potentially away from humans' mouths, then they've got a, they got a problem. So they're continually looking for bioplastics or alternative materials that can be sourced from renewable resources but don't potentially take away from a harvestable crop that could be used for food. Even though, yes, in the U.S. we have a glut of these materials, they're worried about well, what happens maybe in a few harvests from now. Uh, and they've yeah. got a whole, re whole bunch of materials and products that are using these natural resources, and suddenly it's taking away from, from you and I the ability to eat. But that's an interesting question. Do you see, I know that Material Connection has offices all over the world, yes. and are you seeing in different locations, obviously there's different appetites for different types of materials and different trends based on maybe their situation and their economic, political, social environment? Um, or do you keep the same collection in all the different libraries? We, we do change it up, yes. We have uh, libraries all over the world because not all of, our, all of our clients can make it to the New York. So we have them in Asia, we have them in Europe. Um, and we, we find that, yes, there is a slight difference in the sorts of materials they are interested in. Um, there are companies that we work with, let's say some of the Korean uh, consumer products manufacturers, who have a global footprint. So, but, but, but also understand that there is a different aesthetic, a different desire for materials in, let's say, in Japan or in South Korea than there, are, than there is in the U.S. So yes, they are always looking for different uh, materials and different resources. You know, I was, I was talking to a, a Korean cosmetics company, and apparently the way in which um, women in Korea apply their cosmetics is very different than the U.S. They will apply three, five, sometimes even eight different moisturizers in a very ritualistic process 
in order to you know sort of take care of their skin. It's very much to do with um, they don't like applicators; they prefer to use their hands because it's very much a, a connectivity to uh, to themselves. The type of jars and packaging they use is different as well. They things like, like things out of glass and things which are much more um, pure, I guess, or you know they they prefer to use glass rather than plastic. Again, it's a much more ritualistic process. The colors aren't as bright. The uh, the chemicals are as trying to be as as, as least less harsh as possible. So it's different. So they have different requirements for the cosmetics, but also different requirements for the materials and the packaging for the cosmetics. Same thing for things like their their home appliances, their their dishwashers, their fridges. They have a different approach to interactions with materials. That means that the manufacturer needs to think differently about not just the way that the product looks, but where the materials are sourced from. And we do it while we're driving a car, put on our makeup, and (laughs) (laughs) well, we don't wear any. So in where we are kind of now and where we see the political, social, economic environment going, do you have any predictions on something either that you see that you want to see more of or that you don't see yet but you think is an untapped area or resource where we need to be driving it? Well, I have a belief that um, the 21st century and beyond needs to be one in which we are using our renewable resources more. Um, we've seen it in plastics. We've seen it in many of our products. We can produce high-performance products from natural resources. I would also love to see something more akin to a circular economy, uh, used a lot in in Europe. Certainly talked about a lot in Europe. More challenging here in the U.S. We are starting to hear about it, but it's not something that is is a part of the mindset where we're thinking about what happens to a product at the end of its life. How do we then regain its value? Putting it into a landfill has zero value. How can we make a product then then potentially has a second life, a third life, and has value that can be reaped? So I think the circular economy is something I'd like to see more of. Um, So I think I have great belief in humans' ability to innovate. I think many of the challenges we currently have, um, which seem to be insurmountable, I think human ingenuity will move past them. That, that's why I love to see innovation. I love to see ingenuity and love to see that, that uh, fostered by governments, by, by private companies. But just looking to simpler solutions, better solutions. I think the human mind is probably our greatest resource. Um, and if we, as I mentioned with the, the scientists who stopped thinking about synthetics and start thinking about renewables, great things can come from that, that sort of development. I love that material connections uh, tagline or quote, every material has a solution. And I wonder if there's any particular case you could talk about that was really challenging, really difficult, but ultimately, you know, ideally had had a solution or maybe a different solution than what was originally anticipated. Yeah, I mean, we have we have plenty of those. Um, that's kind of you know what what we try and do is is to find different ways of, of solving a problem. You know, um, current examples uh, is using uh, the fabrics on the back of chairs. Like the chairs we're sitting in right now have a fabric back. It's not a foam back. It's one of these new um, uh, seats that are more like the Herman Miller Aeron chair, which revolutionised the way we see seat backs. We have seen those used for speaker grills for products which are used for um, you know a good example is is um, uh, UE Boom, which is a very uh, successful product out there on the market, which is a speaker. Think about your average um, speaker that your parents had and probably you have as well. It sits up on a shelf. No one touches it. It's delicate. It's supposed to be a a high-performance product that has delicate instruments inside. But nowadays, we want to take our music with us. So how do you then take that speaker and make it portable? 
you can't just use the regular materials that they use up there because um, it, they simply wouldn't be able to survive. So taking materials such as the back uh, of, of a seat and using its properties, which is durability, acoustically transparent properties, and also, um, uh, in some cases, water resistance, and apply that as the outside of um, a speaker, and then you can use that in, a, in applications that you wouldn't normally. So I can then take it with me. I can, I can clip it onto the back of my, my belt loop. I can, I can even drop it into a pool for a couple of seconds and it still survives. I can roll it across a concrete floor and it doesn't matter. So that was an application where we had to change completely the way we think about regular speakers because of the new ways in which people want to listen to music. As you're talking about new ways, it, it kind of brings to mind the shifts in, in um, circuitry and those designs. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about using a seat back to protect an acoustic device. Now we're also looking at, okay, how do we embed in, in the actual fabric the, the digital properties? How do we right. transform the clothing itself into a haptic device? How do we change those sorts of things? Can you talk a little bit about that shift too, to the, the soft, the flexible inside of the robotics and, and digital circuitry? Sure. Um, printed electronics has been a revolution um, when it comes to the electronics industry. The ability to make what used to be a big box of hardware then become something which is kind of like a flexible piece of transparent film with all the same functionality, the battery, the, the LED lights, the switches, all the cables, all the resistance and transistors, all those things um, applied micro-thin onto a flexible transparent film. That's what print electronics does. And it does it at the speed that you print uh, a newspaper. So what's known as roll-to-roll -roll manufacturing. The ability to take one big roll of plastic film, run it at high speed across a printing head, and then print all of those electronics on that surface, and then roll it back up again, and then ship it somewhere. So low cost, high volume, also disposability as well. So that has revolutionized the way we understand electronics. And has also enabled us to think about how we can put electronics into, into fabrics themselves. This has been a big challenge, mainly because, as I mentioned before, our existing manufacturing process for most of the clothes we wear is quite a dated one. So marrying the high-tech electronics and high-performance uh, processing of those types of uh, e-textiles e with a basic cut-and-sew process is, has been a challenge. How do you power it up? How do you wash it? What happens if you have different sizes? What happens if the, the shoulder cut that you have is in a different place? So therefore, you have to make sure that the electronics, so let's say, on the front of my shirt connects to the electronics on my shoulder and then onto my sleeve. That's not easy with current manufacturing processes. So that's been one of our challenges. How do we take the electronics and the high-tech process and adapt it to, to fashion for things like e-textiles? So getting to that, do you think that that will help in sense of the bringing back manufacturing to the U.S.? Because we have to be really close to it to understand and, and develop it. Because there is a lot of companies in um, Brooklyn that are really concentrating on looking into that new technology and how to integrate it into the textiles and the fabrics and, and final products. I think the, yes, there needs to be a better um, connection between the two, between the fashion designer who wants to create something beautiful and the electronics and the, and the manufacturing itself. So I think, yes, that does give an opportunity for, uh, for companies to be able to, to create um, brand new uh, markets through that. I think um, the manufacturing process, to put those two, two together, yes, hasn't been perfected yet. So I think we do need to f have that company that can do that. So I would 
I would look to those types of innovative companies, the startups, the one who can move, um, uh, the ones who can move quickly and you know adaptively to potentially come up with those sorts of solutions and pair up with the old manufacturers that are existing here to really make them develop. Yeah, because I think a lot of the the older manufacturers who have an ability to adapt and have machinery which is is not outdated because a lot of the machinery is simply just being adapted to new processes. So, you know, we talk to a lot of the, the, the 3D knitting manufacturers, you know, these, these companies who are creating incredible new structures. And a lot of it is adaptation of existing processes. You know, the 3D knitting is not new. It's been around for many years, but it's how do I adapt machines to some of the new yarns and some of the new um, the software in order to manufacture something which is new. But of course, there is the concern what happens at the end of life for these e-textiles. Um, what happens when you have a wonderful garment that perhaps uh, now has wires connected to it, has printed um, silver and copper and other precious metals attached onto the, the fabric of the garment? Um, separating it apart becomes more challenging. In the same way, in the way that I can recycle a 100% polyester garment, potentially, I can't do that as soon as I put any metals into it. Um, so I wonder whether the area of e-textiles um, will work well for objects or pieces that can be added on and then removed. So does it actually become integral to the garment? I'm not sure. Because if it's integral to the garment, then it's hard to separate. If you have it as an add-on, obviously not, not as a cyborg piece, but just something, you know, is it, is, is, is it a wrist strap? Is it something more akin to our current devices? Flexible, thin, lightweight, all those things, conformable, but not necessarily as part of the fashion piece you're wearing. Because if I got it into a jacket, which just, someone has just produced, if it gets warm, I take the jacket off, I've lost all my functionality. You know, if I want to change my T-shirt because I've got some ketchup on it, now what do I do? So if all of, the fun all of the performance is in one garment, I need to keep wearing that garment. And that's not what we do when we, when we walk around and wearing clothes. But one of the things that I do see about textile and the technology, I don't look at it. I look at it to medical. Mm -hmm. And I look at it as um, furniture. So imagine sitting in, a, in, in, in your chair and having your fabric control the TV. Mm -hmm. Those are the only two ways that I see it because it's not so much of... Right. Of uh, taking off, washing. I, I, I would agree, yes. I would add to that military. The military certainly has been, has been, yes. But with medical, yes. And people are also willing to have a level of discomfort with medical that they wouldn't be with, with fashion. So that's, you know, if this, I'm willing to wear a strap around my chest to make sure that I'm, you know, I'm kept healthy. I'm willing to do that. Furnish is a great example because we keep them for two, five, ten years. Um, and that functionality can be embedded into a fabric which is washable, which looks attractive. It doesn't need to look like a switch. It can simply, as you said, be a, um, a fabric that you can just stroke. So I think there's some potential there. The furniture companies are moving in that direction. The challenge comes, what fabric are you willing to use? Are you, you know, does does the company offer 30 different designs or with that in? So, or do you have to have a limited number? Because with the material itself, my, my taste for floral patterns is very different from yours with, with very much more geometric patterns. So I do need to have all the fabric in all of, the, in all of those versions. You know, that, that's a problem also with aesthetic taste. You have to have the functionality in every single type of, of yeah, but color. You have less options in the fabrics of your furniture than in... <laughs> that is true, yes. And also you change it less. So that's, yes. that's a good point. That's a good time for us to pause, and we'll be back with our final segment, Remnants, right after this.
Hi, everyone. This is Mark Rako. I'm one of the hosts of Fashion Is Your Business, another great show on Mouth Media Network. If you like the podcast you're listening to, Material Is Your Business, then I bet you're going to love Fashion Is Your Business, which intersects fashion, technology, and innovation, and also American Fashion Podcast, which Harper's Bazaar calls for the true fashion nerd at heart. Both shows and a whole bunch of other great podcasts are all available at MouthMediaNetwork.com. And when you do listen, let us know you heard about them on Material Is Your Business. Thanks a lot, and now back to the show. We're back. You're listening to Material Is Your Business. We're here with Dr. Andrew Dent of Material Connection, and it's time for... Remnants, our fun personal questions that we get to ask at the end. And who wants to go first? And now it's Remnants. I'll go first. Did you always know that you wanted to be doing material research and working at a place like Material Connection? Um, no. Um, I came to it partially by accident. Um, my ac- academic career um, was more based upon just a general curiosity and one of the advantages, I think, of being a material scientist is that if you, in any particular situation, so in, in this room, in this studio right now, being a material scientist, having worked at Material Connection, I can tell you what everything is made of, how it's made, why it's the color it is, why it's the texture it is, and also how to improve it if you wanted to. So it gives you a great grounding in the physical world. You know, I, I'm, I love the digital, I love um, that aspect, but I think for me, the ability to understand our physical world and know what it's made out of, and then also potentially what some of the challenges are, I think for me has, has, has been a great uh, resource. Um, it makes me feel just, I think, just more grounded. Samantha. Uh, <laughs> um, so I've seen that you traveled all over the world. Is there any particular place that you love more and why? Um, one of my favorite cities is Milan. Um, every year there is the Milan Furniture Fair. We have an office there. And there is just such a big difference between um, the way life is lived uh, there compared to where I was brought up, which is in England, and also to, to the US. There is such a passion for life and for food and for color and for fashion. It is, it is impossible not to get taken up with it. Um, so I've um, spent some time there, uh, brought my wife there. It's just, it is, it's, just a, such a rich city, and it lives life to the full, and that's really probably one of my favorite places. What's your favorite food? I think if I was to say what my favorite food is, it, it changes. Um, I don't have something I go back to every time. Um, I just love new experiences. Um, obviously, new cultures that can give me those new experiences of food are, are great, and I really haven't found anything that I don't like yet. We've had a couple of conversations off mic where you've pulled together different areas, different industries, different like ideas. And um, I kind of like that sort of thinking. So from childhood, what is a, um, a blend of either characters or a blend of concepts that you remember that you would be really, that you were really excited about seeing in the world? Like what was a, a melding of different ideas? Um, if I, it wasn't from childhood, but it has been from, from my experience. Uh, I love to see when artists and scientists get, get, get together. I think watching the, sometimes their inability to, to communicate is, is great. We, we do a lot of that. We, we spend a lot of time putting those two together because I think um, 
the best thing you can do to an artist is to put them outside of a comfort zone and to get them to think differently. The best thing you can do with a scientist is allow them to uh, educate and, and, to and to transmit their knowledge. So putting those two together and helping them communicate. Sometimes we have to be an interpreter. We have to help the scientists understand that the artist or the designer doesn't think in the way that they do. But once you do get them um, sitting down together and working together, it's amazing what can come out of it. And I, I love to be able to to foster that within in companies. We're often putting a designer who thinks entirely in emotional ways about the way in which um, a potential customer will respond to their product. Put that with an engineer who only thinks about numbers and abstract. But if you can get them to, to communicate well, then it's amazing what they can come what they can come out with. Can you give us a final thought, maybe as you reflect back on your career or personal professional life or this interview, anything you want to leave our listeners with as a message? It would be one of hope. For anyone who's looked at sustainability and the way that we manufacture, it can be often easy to feel a little bit depressed about it because we, uh, we know what good sustainability should be. We know what the path forward is in order to make sure that we protect our planet, we produce good products and that sort of thing. But often it can be, you can get caught up and feel as though we're not able to achieve that. I think where my hope comes from is that if we think about trying to solve many of the problems we have with existing technology and existing ways of thinking, I think we will fail. What I love is when I talk to students, talk to artists, talk to those who are perhaps not fettered by existing thinking, then some of the ideas they come up with, I, I teach students at SVA, um, and just working with young designers, their ability to think beyond what we know uh, to be current wisdom, I think is where I find hope. I think a lot of the solutions that we find will come from that unexpected thinking. So I try to foster that as often as I can. And to also, to never think that some of those way out ideas are too far out. They need to be considered because they can often be, maybe you don't take the ent entire idea, maybe just it's a part of it. And then adapt that to existing manufacturing, existing production methods, and you come up with a whole new way of thinking and producing. Great message of hope. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us. How can people connect with you and with Material Connection? What's the best way to reach out? Uh, the best way is through our website, materialconnection.com. It's not spelled in the conventional way. It's uh, material, then connection is an old-fashioned way, C-O-N-N-E-X-I-O-N.com. So find us on the web. Uh, it's probably the simplest way. Um, we're also based in Rockefeller Plaza, so through our website you can find our, our offices uh, here in New York as well as around the world. So use the website to, to get our, our physical address and also email addresses as well. And for Samantha Cortez, adios. And for Rob Sanchez, good night, y'all. I'm Stephanie Benedetto. Go change the world, everyone. Thanks for joining us. See you next time on Material Is Your Business. This has been Material Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at materialisyourbusiness.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Material Biz Show. That's Material B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, materialisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2017. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.